0: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Ms. Kristen Schaefer. She is the executive director of the Pesticide Action Network based in Berkeley, California, with offices actually globally as well as in the Midwest. Before joining the Pesticide Action Network in 1996, Ms. Schaefer worked for the World Resources Institute's Sustainable Agriculture Program. She has been a communications specialist for the Environmental Protection Agency, and she has worked as an agroforestry extension officer with the Peace Corps in Kenya. Prior to stepping in as executive director, Ms. Schaefer was the Pesticide Action Network's program and policy director. And we have spoken before about her many terrific reports. Most recently, she co-authored both A Generation in Jeopardy in 2012 and Kids on the Frontline in 2016 about how children are especially vulnerable to toxic pesticides and chemicals in the agricultural community. So welcome back, Ms. Schaefer. It is great to have you here. There are so many new things on the horizon, and I wanted to have you back as my guest.
1: Thank you so much, Melinda. It's really great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today.
0: Well, we recently saw each other at an organic farming conference, and you had with you the brand-new report from the Pesticide Action Network titled, In Case of Drift, a toolkit for responding to pesticide drift. And I'm here in the Midwest where we experience drift regularly from herbicides, increasingly more herbicides sprayed on commodity crops. But I think that individuals, certainly in California, in any kind of heavily agriculturally dense areas are experiencing drift as well. I know the Southeast struggles with this. I don't know a region really that doesn't have to come to terms with this. So tell me a little bit about how this drift guide came to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we actually developed it... In response, direct response to the emerging crisis that we were seeing around the Camba drift in the mm. Midwest. So, we have worked on drift issues for many years. We had a scientist who several years ago developed a drift catcher, which is a really simple tool that communities can use to measure drift. It's kind of a passive air monitor. So, you can measure drift in the air that's moving from nearby farms into their homes or into schools and whatnot. We've been using that for many years, but it's not as effective at catching herbicides and documenting the impact of herbicide drift as it is insecticides and fumigants, which is what we've been using it for in California and in other parts of the country. So the Incase of Drift Toolkit is really designed to help farmers who are experiencing this herbicide drift at unprecedented levels of herbicides that are being used with the genetically engineered crops, the soy and corn that's being engineered to be used with herbicides like Roundup and now dicamba, even 2,4-D herbicides. And so what they're experiencing is crop damage. In addition to the potential health harms of being exposed to this drift, farmers are experiencing incredible levels of crop damage. So the In Case of Drift Toolkit is sort of a guide to help farmers in particular, but others document the impact of drift, know who to call, and some guidance on if they then want to become advocates around this issue and help us work toward reducing pesticide drift or other organizations who are also focused on it. It has some guides on how to get involved as an advocate as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I opened up the first page and I read the case study where a woman is describing her story where she's living in Minnesota And she's got a little baby and she is realizing that oh my gosh, my children are being exposed to this drift. And she herself becomes ill because a particular insecticide called chlorpyrifos is drifting into her home after it is being aerially applied to a nearby alfalfa field. And so immediately you're taken into the shoes of this woman who's experiencing this and you realize, oh my gosh, not only well, especially our children are at risk, but we too suffer symptoms. And what are our next steps? Who do we call? How do we report it? And all of that information is available in this toolkit, including what kind of symptoms we might be experiencing that could be related to being exposed to pesticide drift.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's often, it's difficult, you know, many times it's invisible. So being able to recognize those symptoms and and be paying attention to when spraying might be happening so that you can document any any health harms that you're feeling, immediate health impacts, as well as documenting any impact on your crops if you're a farmer. And the sad part about the story you mentioned with Bonnie is that She and her family had just moved to the farm and were building a new farm business and ended up moving back to the city because of the health effects of the pesticides that were sprayed on that nearby farm. So it's a a sad story. But she, as a silver lining, has been an incredibly powerful advocate around these issues and one of the voices of someone who has direct experience with what it can mean to be drifted on.
0: Mhm. That's such an interesting story. And you know, I think about, okay, so what was lost? Her investment in her farm business that she hoped to have. The social capital that would have been brought to that rural community. And then I think of the eater, the end the end consumers of the products that she would have been producing who also lose out on that additional nourishment. So mm-hmm. we have a lot to lose. Mhm
1: yeah and I think the the other piece of the story around these chemicals that we know affect children is the kind of potential that's lost right yeah. especially chlorpyrifos is a good example you mentioned it's a neurotoxic chemical that when women are exposed during pregnancy or children in early childhood, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that it basically increases the risk of neurodevelopmental harm. So learning disabilities, ADHD, there's lots of documentation of how it affects brain development. And so the potential of those children out in the world, that's immeasurable, what we're losing in basically derailing the normal development of our youth.
0: Absolutely. And I think that we depend on our government agencies that were set up to offer some protection for the common. So our public health, our water, our air quality, our soil. And those agencies, specifically the Environmental Protection Agency, I've been so disappointed in recent developments because we were hoping that chlorpyrifos was going to be banned because there is tremendous evidence of proof that this is a very dangerous neurotoxic compound. And why on earth would we not have an environmental protection agency looking out for us and banning this? It all boils down to moneyed interests, and I'm so discouraged.
1: It is discouraging, and I think this particular case illustrates that so clearly. And from our perspective, working on these issues, there's always been too much influence from corporations over the policymakers and, and over the decisions that are made by EPA, for example. But this particular case is so egregious where you know EPA was poised to actually withdraw this pesticide from the market for all food uses, the vast majority of uses, because of this incredible body of evidence showing harm to children's neurological development. And it took... A lawsuit, we were part of a lawsuit that pushed that through, but once the process was in motion, EPA's own scientists were recommending that it be withdrawn from the market. That action was unfortunately delayed. It was scheduled for the fall of 2016, it was delayed until March of last year. And the new administration did an about-face and said, no, we're not going to take action on this pesticide. And this was after a meeting with officials from Dow Chemical Company. And as the New York Times reported, Dow had contributed a million dollars to the Trump administration's inauguration. And so it's just so clear that this is a decision that's putting the corporate bottom line above the interests of children's health that it's it's been a really powerful story and a bit of a a wake-up call for folks to really understand what's being lost when our agencies aren't acting for the public good.
0: Absolutely. And I am sitting here with a statement by Dr. Rout Reigart, who is a pediatrician. He was formerly with the Medical University of South Carolina. And this was his statement, his testimony before the Committee on Agriculture in Hawaii, their house of representatives, in which he says that researchers, medical professionals, even EPA's own scientists have reviewed years of data, all of which point to chlorpyrifos's long-term adverse impacts on the developing brains of children. That leads me to say, okay, people are listening to this. We're outraged. If we're paying attention, we're outraged. Mm-hmm. What can we do? And the Pesticide Action Network's website has a wonderful, wonderful ideas for both local, state, and national ways to become advocates and have our voices of concern heard. Also, you've got a great tool on the website, What's on My Food, where you can see residues of these toxins, you know, which foods are used. I advise people to use and purchase organic produce, specifically not only because of lower residues on the food themselves, but also because of the farmers, the farm workers, and the farm and rural communities that are affected by the use of this. So simple choices in the marketplace can also, I think, impact the kind of agriculture that we have in this country.
1: That's absolutely right. And I think, again, this one chemical, chlorpyrifos, tells that story really well where there's evidence that there are health effects even at the very low levels that you'll find as residues on food, that that can cause harm to children as they're developing. And if you think about what that means in terms of the kids who are living or going to school next to the fields where that chemical is being applied, the decisions that if you're living in an urban area, the decisions you make as a consumer not only is protecting your family but is really breaking that chain of chemical exposure all the way to the field. So yeah, it is. the other interesting thing about the chlorpyrifos story is that it actually had been banned for use indoors as an indoor pesticide, you know, home pesticide back in 2001 because of the potential harm at that point. To children's developing brains. And so there's this long history of strong science, and it took a lot of advocacy to move the policymakers to make choices that are also protecting children in rural areas. And it turns out, again, as the science evolves, we find out that those low levels of residues on food are also impacting children in urban areas as well. So it tells a lot of stories, that one pesticide.
0: Yeah. So often I hear people say, and even dietitians, I'm ashamed to say, will say, well, you know, just wash it, Mm -hmm. or there's such a small amount of residue, you don't have to worry. And here you are explaining that even small amounts, you know, we're talking about parts per million and parts per billion. It's hard for us to get our heads around those small numbers. Yeah. Yeah. But they're biologically
1: active. They are. And, and one way to think about it, many of these pesticides are what they call endocrine disruptors or hormone disrupting chemicals. And if you think about the extremely low levels at which hormones have an effect in our body, these chemicals are mimicking those hormones in our bodies. And so it can be tiny, tiny levels that can kind of turn on and off Functions of a cell as it's developing, or they have these biological impacts that in the last several years have been much more understood why these low level impacts can have these long term effects.
0: Right. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Ms. Kristen Schaefer. She is the Executive Director of the Pesticide Action Network. And I want to make sure everybody knows how to get to your excellent website. It's simply org, And there are many resources there, not only the pesticide drift toolkit that we were talking about, but also these campaigns that are going on all over the country. You can find one that interests you and and see how you can get involved. I want to talk about something that we touched on briefly through an email communication, and that was the fact that how are we all duped? into thinking that we need these products in our lives, you know, under the guise of, well, we've got to feed the world, or just a little bit won't hurt us. But the other piece, and you understand this so well as a communications expert, is this idea of rhetoric, how words and different phrases, terms are used. And you had mentioned to me that Dow is merging with DuPont. This is a frightening in itself is that we're going to have these more powerful consolidations of these huge chemical producers. So Dow and DuPont are merging, and the new name for their seed and pesticide division is Corteva AgriScience. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Why do you think they chose that word? Yeah.
1: So uh, in their in their news release, they note that it's a combination of the concept of heart and nature is the term Corteva, which is, in my mind, so insidious. Here's the corporation that's been pushing aggressively to continue use of this product that is we know is harming children's brains. And with this, they've taken the opportunity of this merger to rebrand and distance themselves from that controversy and, again, sort of give themselves the aura of heart and nature of being kind of a caring corporation that has your best interests at heart. I mean, they have a lot of resources to be, you know, working with the public relations experts that I'm sure they've tested that name to see how people were going to respond. And our job as advocates is to keep shining the light on the reality of the history of these corporations and what they have done and and continue to do in in promoting their products. I would note that just today, actually, we were part of a coalition of groups that released a survey uh, of farmers They were asked, uh, farmers across the country in 48 states were asked what they thought about the Bayer-Monsanto merger, which hasn't yet taken place but is in the works. So again, two of these giant pesticide seed corporations joining forces in, in in an already really consolidated marketplace. And more than 90% of these farmers that were surveyed were were very concerned about what this would mean for farmers, for farm communities, for their access to seed, for increasing the pressure to rely on chemicals in farming, very concerned about the drift issue that, that is being felt across the Midwest around the herbicides and, and across the country around various pesticides. So it's an interesting moment, and so we're trying to, you know, we're doing our best to put pressure on the Department of Justice and, and see if this Bayer-Monsanto merger can be slowed or stopped. And I think it's, I have to say, I think a large part of the motivation, especially on the part of Monsanto, to move forward with this merger is, again, to distance themselves from the controversy that's now associated with their name as a corporation.
0: Mm-hmm. And I also heard that they were in the red, So combining with Bayer was also a financial decision. Mm -hmm. Just as we eaters and citizens are stronger when they're together, they too create a more powerful block, a more difficult agency together or um, company to sue. Mm. If people have damages, you know, they just become so large that the little guy feels even smaller. And it's more difficult for us. But I do like to have this piece of hope to let people know that organizations like yours exist so we don't have to feel that we're alone in this. And to be aware is the first step. And to point out, as you say, you know, lift the curtain on some of this of the ways that these companies try to manipulate the way we think about them.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I think one of the narratives that is really starting to crumble a bit is this you need our products to feed the world Mm -hmm. kind of narrative which is so often kind of front and center on all of the PR spin from the corporations and the reality is you know again and again new um, reports are coming out through UN agencies around the world really documenting that producing with fewer chemicals is really where the future lies and that organic production, sustainable production, can be just as productive as these chemical-reliant systems. And in fact, you mentioned Monsanto being in the red. We're kind of at an interesting moment right now because here we've built out this whole industrial system of grain production, the commodity production of soy and corn, that's based on this model of genetically engineered seeds, designed to be used with these herbicides which is a wonderful business model right for mm-hmm. Monsanto and Dow and so on because they're selling both the seeds and the chemicals but the reality is this model is beginning to fail and farmers are now faced with with weeds that are resistant to Roundup Monsanto the glyphosate herbicide that Monsanto has been promoting for so long that no longer works on these weeds so now there's this next generation of GE seeds with herbicides used with, again, dicamba or 2,4-D. But the weed scientists are saying there's going to be resistance to those herbicides in another two or three years. Mm -hmm. So here the farmers are stuck on this treadmill of shifting to the next more toxic chemical, and many of them are seeing that this really is not sustainable. So we're at an interesting moment when, again, and weed scientists are Academics are speaking out and raising the alarm about what this means for the future of grain production in the United States and that we really need to choose a different path.
0: Absolutely. And we are setting up models, alternative examples for people because I think for the farmer who's been caught up into this industrial system, they need a recipe to get out of it. And the more we can model those alternatives and help them see that there is an economically sustainable future available, I think the more we'll be able to move in that direction.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, again, part of the work that we do and with many of our partner groups is lifting up those stories of success and advocating for investment in sustainable practices, at universities, at the state agencies, even at the federal level, as the Farm Bill now is moving forward this year. It's like that's an opportunity for us to really push for resources to go to the farmers who want to step off that pesticide treadmill and pursue innovative approaches that are much more healthy and sustainable.
0: Absolutely. That's another reason why I really appreciate your website, because We can go there. There are right at the very first homepage, there's a button to hit that says take action so that we can work together and be stronger to change some of these policies. I want to also touch on some of the other campaigns that you have Mm -hmm. with the Pesticide Action Network. They're all important, healthy kids. You've also got information on saving bees and our Mm -hmm. pollinators that are essential to our food system. We spoke about drift, healthy schools, the toxic tater campaign where McDonald's is buying potatoes largely from one outfit in Minnesota where fumigants are used every five to seven days and drifting into schools. You've also got a campaign on fair harvest. And I wonder if I'll put the ball in your court and say you can talk about any of these campaigns that you want to, but I will say that I'm so glad to see that you focus on children, insects, as well as farm workers and their families who really are on the front lines.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and and that's been an important part of our work for many, many years. I think farm workers and and farm worker families are, as you say, very much on the front lines of the industrial agriculture system. and, And for so long have had so few on-the-job protections against these chemical exposures. And in fact, one of the things that we're focusing on right now, we've been working with our farmworker advocacy partners for many years to win an update of what's called the Worker Protection Standard, which is basically the federal rules that protect farmworkers on the job because they're exempt from regular labor law under OSHA. It, that's they're certified right. and not protected by any of those rules. So this worker protection standard hadn't been updated for 20 years. It wasn't considered in consideration of all the new chemicals being used and, and the new environment on these farms. So we won some really important improvements, and that rule is now been put on hold. It was slated to start implementation at the beginning of last year and with the new administration has not been moving forward. Just as an example, one of the things that we had won was an increase in the age restriction for handling pesticides so that children under the age of 18 could no longer be working directly with chemicals. And that has been put on hold. There's a proposal to bump that back down again um, Mm. so that children as young as 16 could be working with chemicals. And given what we know about how harmful these pesticides are to developing minds and bodies. I think this is a really important thing to fight for and mm-hmm. to protect the farm workers across the country.
0: Are there uh, protections for, excuse me, one moment, it's while we're talking about farm workers and protections, I, I have to ask, what about pregnant women? Are there protections for them?
1: As farm workers specifically? yes. Actually, I'm not sure. That's not written into the worker protection standards specifically. I believe it may vary state to state. Yeah. I'd have to find out about that. Wow. Yeah, because certainly that those exposures are going to have an impact on children born from farm worker women. And one of the studies that we often point to from here in California is the Chamaco study, which is on the central coast where there are strawberries are grown and, and lettuce and many of the fruits and vegetables that, are, that use quite a bit of pesticides. And this study actually measured the level of pesticides in pregnant women and it was farm worker women and and women working in rural communities, and then has tracked for, I think it's 14 years now, has tracked the health outcomes of their children and has seen these incredible linkages between, you know, for the women who had high levels in their bodies when they were pregnant of these organophosphate pesticides like chlorpyrifos, they're seeing reduced IQ levels, they're seeing behavioral problems. You know, at every age, there are these linkages to these long-term outcomes for these children.
0: Mm. You have to wonder, you know, how much more evidence do we need to make a policy change?
1: Yeah, and I think that's why, as you say, the combination of really pushing against the rollback of some of these basic protections we've won, and shining a light on this influence of corporations on our policymakers, and then lifting up the success stories and what's happening that we can try to amplify and support and really get excited about that's going to move us in the right direction.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Kristen Schaefer is the Executive Director of the Pesticide Action Network, and I cannot recommend enough the website It can simply keep us informed. If we feel so moved, we've got action steps, both on the local and regional level as well as on the national level. You can find out what some key issues are. You can find out which pesticides and herbicides are most likely to be on the foods that you enjoy. And a little friendly reminder that by choosing organic food, we not only protect ourselves, But we also protect those vulnerable children that are at the other end of our plate. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And mostly I want to thank my guest, Kristen Schaefer, Executive Director of the Pesticide Action Network. Once again, you've been incredibly informative, and I'm so grateful
1: for your work. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk with you.